Well, good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here, and we are sort of starting or continuing in, I should say, a new tradition here at Sycamore where we take the month of September, kind of near the beginning of the school year, to review our vision and values as a congregation. You may remember last year your officers and elders spent six, seven months together in prayer and, and, and discussion and study to kind of come up with a vision of who we are as a church and where we want to go. And so, um, we're going to talk about that and the values in, in that vision over the next uh, four weeks. But before we do that, let's pray together. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your church. We thank you, Lord, that you have ordained your church as your plan A, what you intend for the salvation of the world. We thank you that you've given your church gifts. You've given her officers. You've given her leaders. You've given her your word that we might go forth against the darkness and we pray, Lord, that you would once again give us hope, joy, courage, and boldness as we see ourselves in Christ as you see us. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So way back, long time ago, when I was in grad school or seminary, I took this class called Cultural Apologetics, and it was a really good class. It was about learning practical, real-world objections to Christianity and then how to engage those objections. And our, our final project, and we should have known we were going to be in trouble because our professor was a former missionary, so he like been there and done that. It wasn't just academic to him. Our final project was to strike up a conversation with an actual living non-Christian. Or to talk to a non-Christian you already know. And of course, we're seminary students living in a seminary bubble. We didn't know any non-Christians. Find out what objections they have to Christianity. Engage them using what you've learned. And then write a really short paper about it. Paper's not the point. The conversation is, so don't even worry about the paper that much. And this room full of future pastors freaked out. Some complained to the dean. I was not one of them. Some started whining to each other. Definitely one of them. Others just flat out refused to do it. We went and complained to the professor. We don't know what to do. And he's like, guys, just, just go belly up to a bar. And the guy next to you wants to talk. We're like, a bar? <laughs> yeah. But it was such a necessary exercise. Because as you all know, once you've filled your head enough, there comes a time when you need to let life squeeze you to see what comes out, right? You need to deploy this knowledge that you have and actually use it. And that's where we are today in our vision and our values. Today we're on the value of thrive. It's where we take what we have absorbed, we take what we have learned in worship and in Sunday school and in Bible studies and in small groups, and we actually, you know, deploy that knowledge into our lives and the lives of those around us. Now, I kind of just jumped in right there, so I want to step back and give us a little bit of context. First, what are our vision and values, right? It's on the front of the bulletin. It always has been for the last year. It's out there in our foyer, but our vision as a church is a robust church joyfully united to Jesus, our community, and each other. 
And we, your, your officers came up with that vision from studying together for a long time. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to throw this up here for you so you can see it. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is giving instructions to the church. He actually talks about Jesus as the enthroned Lord. And as the enthroned Lord, he gives gifts to his church. So what does he give? Start, you, can, you can see here, starting here, Ephesians chapter 4. Sorry, that slide should say 4. Anyway, he said, he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers. Why? to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body. He goes on in verse 16 and says, when each part is working properly, he makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So those four italicized phrases are the source of our value. So our value of fellowship comes from the phrase builds itself up in love. Our value of teaching comes from the phrase building up the body of Christ. Our value of equipping comes from to equip the saints. And our value of missions comes from for the work of ministry. So those are our four core values as a congregation. Fellowship, training, equipping, and missions. So using these four core values, Sycamore seeks to build disciples through building in, building up, building well, and building out. And for ease of remembering those four core values, and they're on the front of your bulletin, are live, grow, thrive, and go. Now, just to shake things up, because, you know, we like to do that here, Marty and I are going to alternate values back and forth, and we're going to go out of order. But we're not doing it to bother you. We're doing it because we're really poor planners, and we forgot Marty was going to be out of town this Sunday, and so he was going to have the first one. So, oops, our bad. Sorry. So we're going to start today with Thrive from verse 12 where it says to equip the saints. So building up because at Sycamore we want God's people to thrive. So jumping right in, equipping, what is that? Equipping is making it right. The word equip here in Ephesians was used outside the Bible. We call it extra biblical literature of the time. And it was used in in primarily three main ways. It was used in medical texts. Yeah, they existed 2,000 years ago. It was used in medical texts for setting a bone. That's what equipping meant. In other contexts, it was used for repairing something so it worked like it was designed to work. That's the idea of equipping. Another way it was used, it was used for the idea of making something presentable or functional according to its design. That's the idea of equipping. So most scholars, when they look at the book of Ephesians, they see an overall construction motif or metaphor. It's almost as if Paul is looking at a set of blueprints from the Old Testament temple as he is writing the book of Ephesians. It kind of just fits together with this construction idea. And so what I want you to do is I want you to think of those home makeover shows. So to equip is the final staging. It's getting all the furniture and making the design beautiful and useful. So you can remember, here's what I want you to remember. We get to be on church as an episode of Fixer Upper. You know these guys right here? Yes, we get to be Chip and Joanna Gaines, which is always a good thing. Now, I've told this story before. I'm pretty sure he wasn't famous then, so I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure when I was at Baylor, that really extroverted redhead guy who kept interrupting the professor and talking about his new business he just started, pretty sure that was Chip Gaines in my history class. I'm not sure. He wasn't famous then. So what we've just seen this show, what happens? Chip comes in. He fixes what's broken. He constructs things according to Joanna's plan. And then afterwards, Joanna comes in and she gets furniture and she makes everything beautiful and the colors line up. She gets the flowers right here. And of course, there's always shiplap somewhere. So she puts, right, so she gets it beautiful. 
That's the idea that Paul is getting at here of equipping. That's what this idea is. When you feel trained, when you feel equipped, you're bold, you're beautiful, you thrive right where God has put you. That's the staff and session's dream for Sycamore, is that y'all would thrive like that. So what is equipping? Equipping is the idea of mending. It's the idea of completing. It's the idea of restoring or even repairing. Let's give you some examples. Okay, let's play a little Bible drill here. We're going to go through some areas in the New Testament where this is used. First place we see it is in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Very famous verse where Paul tells us that all Scripture is breathed out, or another way to translate it is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's add in those other meanings. Why does God do this? That the person of God may be mended for every good work. Isn't that an interesting nuance, that you're mended towards these good works? Or even you're restored towards these good works that God intends for you. Isn't that a beautiful way to think about that nuance? Here's another one. The famous benediction at the end of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13. The author says this, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. May he complete you with everything good so you can do his will. May he restore you with everything good so you can do his will. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. You're starting to get an idea of how big this concept of equipping is. Here's another one, 2 Corinthians 13. Paul is wrapping up this book. It says, finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. It's the same word for completion, being mended, being equipped. Aim for that. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. See, this idea is really profound, and it's hard to nail it down with one or two words, and that's sort of why we chose the idea of, of thriving, because it's really hard to define thriving with one or two words, isn't it? It's more of an amorphous concept. So we have thriving, we have building well to kind of capture this idea. And we see a very salient example of it in the early ministry of Saul or Paul. We're going to read it in a moment, but first let me give you some background. So, In the very ancient early church, and I mean like early, early church, we're talking like a few months after the resurrection of Jesus, that early in the church, this infant church is spreading all over Palestine, and the Jewish religious authorities at the time are doing everything they can to stop it, to squash it. And so in an act of really what can only be called sanctioned terrorism, they commission this young firebrand named Saul, give him actual documents like, you know, so he can get out of jail free if the Romans capture him, and he's authorized by them under their authority to arrest, torture, and kill as many Christians as he can get his hands on. And his first assignment is Damascus. So as he gets on his trusty stallion, he's riding his way to Damascus, getting ready to go kill some people. Jesus shows up, knocks him off his horse, strikes him blind, basically says to him, stop it. And then says, oh, and by the way, you're gonna be my chief missionary from now on. And our text picks up in his first public teaching after that. So if you wanna turn to page 11 in your order of worship, it's on page 863 in the pew Bible or chair Bible there in front of you. We'll look together at Acts chapter nine, starting in verse 20. And immediately, 
he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. This is God's word. So Saul arrives in town, a a different man. And he's very scared, this very scared Christian who God actually has to come in a dream and actually like talk to him, say, go talk to Saul. This scared Christian comes and shares the gospel with him. And Saul actually believes it. He confesses Jesus as the resurrected Lord, which kind of might have been easier for him since he like, you know, saw him. And then he starts preaching. And did you notice where it says Saul started preaching? Not on the street corners to the Gentiles. He goes into the synagogues. He goes to his Jewish compatriots and starts preaching in the synagogues. And they all knew who he was because he was the honored guest. They knew he was coming. They knew why he was coming. They'd sold tickets because this guy was going to rip on Jesus and he was going to rip on this new Christian sect and they could not wait to hear his talk. So he gets there and instead he presents the gospel to them. And note what's hidden there in verse 22. Verse 22 tells us that Saul increased all the more in strength. And often we in church world who are familiar with Saul and later becoming Paul, we assume that his effectiveness in ministry is a product of his personality, right? And so, you know, it it makes us feel inadequate if we're not very confrontational and bold like Paul was, or, or we use it as an excuse for not talking about Jesus. Well, I'm just not wired that way. See, but the text won't let us do that. We could literally translate verse 22 as he was receiving more and more strength. His zeal, his boldness was not innate to him. He was equipped to do this. By his own testimony in other parts of the New Testament, he tells us that he actually took time at this point to go out into the desert and study for three years. Most likely here in this text, between verse 22 and 23, he goes out in the desert and studies. And so when Luke kind of just offhandedly says in verse 23, and when many days had passed, he means like three years worth of days had passed. He went out to get grounded in the gospel. And now after his study, he's complete. He's restored. He's equipped to go. And in verse 23, Saul takes this message of Jesus all over the city. And we see in the text, this angers the authorities. Saul has to escape because the religious folk are gonna kill him. So Saul gets to to Jerusalem, back to Jerusalem for the first time in over three years. And he's there for the first time as a Christian. He wants to meet the apostles and go talk to them. He wants to join the community of disciples, but they're afraid of him, which is completely understandable at this point, right? Right? 
I mean, Saul was a terrorist working for the authorities. They've seen the spy movies. They know what a double agent looks like when they see one. But I love the fact that, they, that Luke puts this in here. Because if you're making up a story, you know, it's called hagiography when you only do the really positive parts of someone's life and you brush over all the negatives. Or maybe when that salesperson hands you the brochure, it doesn't start off with all the problems of their product, right? No, they, they bury those. It's all about the good stuff. You know, so Luke's doing it wrong if he's trying to sell us on something here. But if he's actually recording accurate history the way human beings actually act in a situation, this gives me great encouragement because this is exactly how I would act. And it's probably exactly how you would act too, isn't it? Real people would see Saul coming in and Saul's like, I'm a Christian now, I love Jesus. And we start quoting George Strait, right? Yeah, I've got oceanfront property in Arizona for you. But that hesitation there kind of gets us to the second point. where We see an equipment failure. And when I ask the question, what stops us from thriving as Christians? And we see it in verse 26. It's a lack of belief and it's the wrong kind of fear. They stop us from thriving. First of all, lack of belief. Look at who these people are. Even those who had seen and experienced what these early disciples had seen, they'd seen the resurrected Jesus. We're told that over 3,000 people saw Jesus. It wasn't some tiny little group keeping a secret. 3,000 people saw the resurrected Lord. Many of them had seen miracles take place in Jesus' lifetime and after in the early ministry of the apostles. They'd been there for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And yet, having seen all of that, they still struggled to have confidence in the gospel, to believe that it was actually powerful enough to transform a terrorist like Saul. See, in verse 26, if you really dig in, what you see there is you see a lack of belief in the gospel by the leaders. They're holding on to an incorrect mentality. They act as if the gospel is, well, you know, clean up yourself kind of look a little bit more like us, and then we can do the Jesus thing. And that's the mentality that, that, that we often fall into too, isn't it? Oh, dear Christian, what is it that scares you so much that you see the people around that thing or that issue as adversaries? So much so that if one of them suddenly confessed Jesus you'd struggle to believe it too. Do we really believe the gospel is powerful enough to change a terrorist? Because when we do, we're able to see past our own fears and to see the power of God for salvation. And when we live in that, that's thriving. The second equipment failure we see here in verse 26 is we see the wrong kind of fear. They were afraid, legitimately so afraid of Saul. They were afraid of the religious authorities and they were afraid of the Romans. You know, we just finished our series on Ecclesiastes and it ended up with this simple reminder. The whole book came to this head about there's only one kind of fear that brings life and safety in a scary world. Chapter 12, verse 13 says what? Here's the end of the matter. Here's the conclusion. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. So this does not mean being afraid of God, but this is a worshipful recognition that you did nothing for your salvation except bring the sin from which you needed rescue. And it's fearful 
Because when we really see how powerless we were to save ourselves, our favored status as daughters and sons, it feels like a fluke. It feels like we haven't earned it. It feels almost insecure, like someone's gonna find out I don't belong in this party. That's part of the fear of God. But the other side is we recognize that it's grace and so we worshipfully rejoice. You're right, I haven't earned it. Someone else earned it for me and gave it to me and if it was up to me, I would mess this up so bad and it scares us and that all together is what it means to have this fear of God. It's too good to be true and it scares us. But in that worshipful fear, we're then empowered to follow God's instructions. So much so that verse 13 we just looked at tells us not so much it's the whole duty of man, but a better translation is this is the totality of humanity. In other words, fearing God and obeying him is what you were created to do. It's what it means to be human. They knew all this. They had the book of Ecclesiastes. But just like us, these early Christians forgot that. And they feared Saul. And such improper fear stops our thriving. But it usually isn't that blatant. We're usually much more subtle than our fear. Here's what it often looks like for us. I know God loves me. I, I, I believe that God takes care of me and that nothing happens to me outside of his will, but, right? And as we all know, what comes after the but is who you really are and what you really believe. And what comes before the bet doesn't count, right? I believe that God takes care of me, but the boys don't like me. I know God loves me, but I can't get a hold of my finances. I know nothing happens to me outside of his will, but my kids are breaking my heart. All real world hard issues. And we fear them instead of fearing God which stops us from thriving in the gospel we confess but don't really believe in our hearts. But the good news is that in the face of our equipment failures, we can thrive by grace and that when we're equipped, we're bold and we're beautiful. First of all, bold. Verse 28 shows us that Paul demonstrates major boldness. He's been equipped, he's been restored, he's been completed. So as a thriving Christian, he goes out and he is bold. And as we saw before, this is not natural to him. His boldness comes from him being equipped by God, from him being restored by the Spirit, from him being mended by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's own description of his ministry in his own words shows this truth. Just a couple of examples. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul's describing his ministry and he says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Paul comes and says, I wasn't much to look at or hear. And yet the spirit worked. He's confessing, I was equipped to do this because it wasn't in me. Another point, Ephesians chapter six, Paul is asking for prayer for his ministry from prison. He says, and pray for me also that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I, may, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul knows he's weak. He knows he needs to be equipped. So he says, please pray for me that I'll be equipped. Colossians chapter four, another prayer. says, at the same time, pray for us also that God may open a door 
for the, God, for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. See, Paul confesses, he says, my preaching was hindered by weakness and fear. And so he asked for prayer that he would be equipped, that he could thrive in boldness, that he could build well this ministry. Oh, dear Christian, you thrive when you take what you know and you deploy it into your life and the life of others. God said his strength is made perfect in our weaknesses. And so when we step out in our weaknesses in faith, we can thrive. But we don't like to step out in our weaknesses, do we? We like to hide our weaknesses. You, you know why we do that, right? Okay, this is not rocket science. It's because we're weak in our weaknesses. And we don't want people to know we're weak. But a thriving Christian says, I know I'm weak, but God is strong here, so I'm gonna show how much of a bumbling weakling I am in this. God says that he answers prayer. And Paul shows us here, so I pray to be equipped because I'm not. God tells us that we are his children, and so we should pray, Father, help us, equip us. See, deploying our belief that God will make you bold in your weakness is thriving. When you can show off his strength and you know it's his strength because you've been equipped, that's building well. That's what it means to thrive. And we see that in this text, in this story, through the character of the person of Barnabas in verse 27. When the terrorist shows up, Barnabas believes him. He boldly risks his reputation with the other Christians to visit Saul. He risks personal harm if this is a setup. He's revealing himself as a Christian leader to the double agent if Saul is not who he says he is. And verse 28 shows us how successful his boldness was. It says Saul is in and out of all their houses. It means he was part of the community. He was eating with them, staying with them. He was one of them. They let this guy in. He had their GPS coordinates on his iPhone. He could give it to the authorities just like that. But they didn't care. They believed he was one of them. He's part of the community. And we see that being part of that community equips him to then preach boldly. He is effective and he's getting reaction because he has been equipped to do this. Which reminds us of something we can often forget. The gospel, sometimes you think it's, it's some sort of thing. The gospel is merely an announcement. It's an announcement that we boldly proclaim that Jesus Christ is the resurrected Son of God. And if we're not making that announcement, we're not building well. Being equipped, thriving together yields boldness in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, your session and your staff wants us to thrive like that, being bold and being equipped. But there's more than boldness here. Saul is accepted in the community, we said. He's able to move in and out. He's completely welcome. Why? Because being equipped also produces being beautiful. There's one more use of this word equipped. I've held it back until now. In the ancient Roman idea of politics, in their political theory and political writings, the idea of equipping meant this. You ready for this? The idea of equipping meant the ability to take people from this faction and people from this faction and bring them together so government could function. 
Oh Lord, send us some equipping today, right? And we totally see that in this Acts text. Barnabas takes Saul by the hand. He leads him to opposition and adversaries. He vouches for him personally and Saul becomes part of this family and community because of Barnabas. It's so beautiful. But it's not always easy unless we're equipped to do so. Thriving in the gospel so we can set aside our preferences and allow for differences. You know, if we're politically conservative Christians, we have trouble accepting other Christians who aren't, don't we? Even questioning their salvation. I just don't see how they could love Jesus that they have, and we insert a political belief. And progressive Christians do it right back at conservatives, okay, absolutely. And we do that because we aren't equipped mended, repaired, restored to separate our tribe and our preferences from the essentials of the gospel. But being equipped, thriving, gives us the humility to be both teachable and able to see our own deficiencies. Equipped disciples allow freedom on non-essentials. And not just free to be different, but actually free to be safe and part of the community in those differences. Like we see these early disciples do for Saul. Oh, your session and your staff wants to equip Sycamore to be that kind of community where we're bold in Jesus but free to be beautiful. See, equipping overcomes fear to create a thriving community. The equipped people of God rooted in the gospel are not threatened by other beliefs. You get that, right? You realize it's only those who are insecure about what they believe who censor, cancel, and shun. Thriving Christians, united to the risen Lord, we can enter into scary places and scary conversations lovingly and non-judgmentally because we're secure in Christ. That's equipping the saints. You know how deep down you want to have your life count for something? You know that desire you have to make, you, you, you want to do something bigger than you know homework, 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 ride a bike on the weekends or play golf or hunt or kill something or whatever, right? We want to do something more with our life. That's because if the Bible is true, you were created for a purpose. And when you are equipped for that purpose, you walk in joy and fulfillment because you were meant to be part of God's plan A for the salvation of the world. And being equipped in the gospel lets you do that. In the gospel, you're restored, mended, equipped to your original purpose to bring beauty into the ugly places all around us. Thriving is beautiful like that. See, when we thrive, when we're emboldened like that, we can be a grace-filled haven for the curious around us. You know, in a culture like ours where partisan rhetoric rules the day, anyone seeking truth will be drawn to a community made beautiful in the gospel. And that's not just preacherly hyperbole, okay? Secularism, you can look, th- you can look this up or see it from your own example. Secularism can only do what? It can only cancel, it can only condemn, it can only ban, it can only silence. It's fundamentally destructive. But Christianity is different. 
Our Lord Jesus himself uses the idea of equipping to show this difference. Jesus himself in Luke chapter 6 says famously, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained, that's this word for equipped, fully mended, fully restored, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? So Jesus Christ, the only person ever who gets to judge and condemn, looks at his followers and says, y'all see me judging and condemning? No. Do you think you're better than me? Is a disciple greater than his master? No. And notice the promise. He says, we will be like him. We will be equipped and thriving. That's what it means. See, in the face of our culture's constant deconstructing, the Bible's infallibility sets us free to learn from our culture, to critically evaluate our fallible culture. See, thriving Christian communities have the freedom to be the most intellectually free communities on earth. Now, students here today, young people, young adults, part of growing up, okay, parents, don't you throw anything at me right now, part of growing up is you're gonna take this faith that you've seen your parents model, that you've seen them teach, that you've heard about in church, and what you're gonna do, and it's a natural part of life, is you're gonna start looking at it and you're gonna start chipping away things. You're like, I think this is a cultural preference. I think this is a generational thing. I don't think that's necessary. And you're gonna get down to this core truth. And you're not gonna leave it there. Don't, don't, don't take the high road. You don't have the moral high ground. You're gonna add your own preferences right back into it, just like everybody else does. But that process where you start to look at what's a preference and what's essential is really scary for your parents. But it's really vital to have an actual, authentic faith. It's natural and it's okay. And unfortunately, as social media is demonstrating over and over again, many raised in the church young people, they take their questions outside of church. They assume church is not a safe place to to do that. It's not a safe place to doubt. I can't ask those questions in my church. It's a common fear, isn't it? From young people, it is. See, an unequipped church stigmatizes doubt, discourages questions, and doesn't let the next generation thrive. Oh, students, hear me. It is the passion of the staff. It's the passion of the elders that you feel safe to wrestle with your faith. We want to be Barnabas for you lovingly walking you through legitimate questions, real differences, and, 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 and true obstacles. Your elders and your staff long, in fact, for every Christian in this room to be that Barnabas to the questioning and seeking that are already all around us in our neighborhoods. See, and I can challenge you straight up to be a Barnabas like that. It's very rare in the scripture gets to let me say, you should. This is one of those few moments. I can challenge you to be Barnabas like that because Jesus was first Barnabas for us, wasn't he? Just as Barnabas risked physical harm and reputation to take Saul by the hand and lead him through adversaries and opposition, vouching for him before the disciples so that he could be accepted and brought into the family, so too Jesus Christ endured physical harm on the cross. He lost his reputation as he hung as a naked, condemned criminal publicly and died that way. 
but he did that so that in his resurrection he could take us by the hand, lead us through the adversary of God's law, the opposition of our sin, vouching himself for us before God, where he essentially says, hey, my dad can be your dad too, and we're adopted by our father in him. So really, I should say that Barnabas was Jesus to Saul, shouldn't I? See, regardless of what you think about church, that's Christianity. If you have not embraced Jesus like that as he's offered to you in the gospel, do it now. Place your faith and trust in him. Oh, and dear Christian, if this is your gospel, own this in your very soul, in your very heart. Grow in it as a disciple and then be deployed as God helps you thrive because you're equipped. Let the leadership of this church equip you into a thriving community emboldened together in the gospel so we can truly be a robust church, joyfully united to Jesus, our community, and each other, where we live, grow, thrive, and go. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we admit we fear so many things. Lord, would you equip us with everything good that we might do your will? Would you help us to thrive under the gospel, Lord, being built well in what we know so we could then go out and be your plan A for the salvation of the world? Lord, we pray you would do this, Father, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.